Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Andy Boyd. Today I'm talking with Mark Nowak about his book, Social Poetics. Mark, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. Uh, It's my pleasure. Um, So could you tell us a bit about this idea of social poetics and how you kind of discovered this tradition of working class poetry and how you see yourself fitting into that tradition? Sure. Um, You know, I had been doing creative writing workshops with uh, in schools and in prisons for, for quite a long time, uh, since around 1990 or something like that. And I had slowly started um, collecting some anthologies that had been from, from those kinds of workshops. And then when I uh, started doing workshops with uh, workers in uh, trade unions and worker centers around the U.S. and in Europe and South Africa and elsewhere... Uh, I, I went back to some of those books and started looking at more because I was interested in this question about why at sites of struggle and moments of uprising and revolution, people seem to turn to poetry. And, and mm. so in the early parts of the book, I really wanted to look at, you know, these moments of like right after the Watts Rebellion uh, in California, the poetry workshop uh, develops and there's a spinoff poets group from there. Uh, and the time of the New York City teacher strike at Attica, uh, elsewhere around the country and around the world, um, the Sandinistas. Like, why always this kind of turn to poetry? Uh, and so the book, the first half of the book or so, is is in part uh, oh, me trying to answer that question. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess, you know, the obvious question is, why poetry? I mean, of all the literary forms, why do you think that's the one that seems to be most amenable to this sort of socially engaged writing rather than, you know, short stories or plays? Or You do talk about plays a bit in the book, though, but why why poetry? Yeah, well, you know, I, you know poetry is like this little kind of pocket weapon, right? Like, it, it takes a long time to sit down and write a novel, but to write a poem or two, uh, we can often get a draft together of that in in one sitting of a poem, right? And it's a way that we can then go to different spaces and share that and put a more performative, say, than a short story or a novel. So in the protests and in the uprisings, like in the South Africa uh, anti-apartheid uh, trade union workshops that I look at in the book, like this becomes like the, the workers at the Dunlop Tire Factory are performing for huge soccer, football stadiums, you know, of people in the in the trade union rallies, right? And so it becomes like I think something you can do uh, one version of a poem uh, in a shorter amount of time. There's a way mm-hmm. to link it to performance. Uh, if you are an organizer for a trade union, uh, it's pretty easy to put a poem into your monthly newsletter, whereas to put a novel in or even a novel excerpt, <laughs> we often don't have space for that, right? So it's a form that that is kind of, it's quick and it's militant and it's it's performative. And I think all of these are, are benefits for the use of poetry in these kinds of situations. 
That's so interesting. I, I, I found that really compelling and it does seem like obviously the perfect form. And yet poetry sometimes has a reputation of being kind of elitist. I mean, I think about my my own mother who reads a lot. She reads, you know, multiple books every month and, and she's uh, a member of the teachers union in Arizona, but she doesn't really read poetry. She doesn't feel like she knows how to read poetry. Why do you think poetry has this sort of uh, uh, reputation for being difficult and, and elitist? Well, you know, I, I think for a long time it was taught by elites in an elite <laughs> way with yeah. elite subject matter, right? And so <laughs> if you're from the working class and your first introduction to it is, you know, scanning a poem by Tennyson for its meter and rhyme structure, you know, you're going to you're going to be put off for it, you know, if you know, you play a guitar and you're forever practicing scales, you know, maybe you become a great guitar player, but but maybe you get tired of that. But if you learn a bunch of chords, like, you know, a handful of chords and you start playing songs by the Ramones, you might very likely kind of pick that up and play in bands and it becomes a, a way to, you know, collaborate with other musicians. There's a social scene around it. Uh, so, you know, I think in recent years, uh, you know, groups like Young Chicago Authors and poets like uh, Patricia Smith and others doing kind of spoken word and written uh, for the page poetry in the schools have made a, a bigger difference at that, right? I think maybe a generation mm -hmm. from now, we might think about that a little differently. But poetry, you know, had been taught in the K through 12 classroom and even the college undergraduate classroom in kind of such a difficult way for so many years that it's not surprising to me at all that most people don't want to read it. I don't, I don't want to go back and scan a Tennyson poem either. Yeah. Do you think part of it might also be that, you know, if you're a young person, if you're a young working class person and you're interested in writing kind of short lyrical uh, expressions of what you're experiencing, music is just a much more immediate uh, presence in a lot of people's lives. I mean, I think about a lot of rappers who, you know, maybe if they had had a poetry workshop would have become poets, but they, you know, listen to hip hop on the radio. And so they, they, they become rappers, which, you know, I don't think is any, any, any knock on them. I think, you know, hip hop can be just as, uh, just as lyrically dense and compelling as, as uh, sort of formal poetry. But do you think that's part of what's going on is that, you know, people who might in other circumstances become poets, become songwriters or, or rappers? Well, I mean, certainly, I mean, my own personal road into poetry was through, you know, hearing Kraftwerk's album, The Man Machine, uh, in the early 1980s and buying a Moog synthesizer and, you know, writing, writing songs, writing lyrics, performing them in a couple of different bands around Buffalo and Toronto and elsewhere. And so that was my own introduction. I think I took one undergrad poetry workshop uh you know, before I got into graduate school. And so that that music was definitely my own road in. And if we had been, you know, signed to a record label, like, you know, our, our people we were playing with at the time were like the Goo Goo Dolls, who were a speed metal band at that point in time, and 10,000 Maniacs, and they got signed out of Buffalo and that made great careers as, as musicians and mm -hmm. he didn't get signed. And I went into grad school for creative writing. So I, th I think there's a really close connection to those two things. So when you went to grad school, you didn't think of yourself as a poet specifically? No, I didn't really at all. I mean, I applied, like I had, I had done actually, I was in a Latin class. Don't ask me why I took Latin. Uh, but I was, I did some translations of Catullus 
And my professor in that class had gone for his PhD at Bowling Green State University. And he knew I was playing in these bands because there were like stories in the newspaper and that with my picture. So in the Buffalo <laughs> News. So uh, he he said to me that, you know, you, these translations you wrote are really good. And I know you write song lyrics and there's this thing in Bowling Green, Ohio called an MFA where I went to school for my PhD and you can kind of go there and learn, you know, poetry and they'll pay you and you get to teach a class or two. And this sounded great to me because I was working at Wendy's and had no idea what I was going to do with my uh, college degree. And by the time I got accepted, the Wendy's that I work with actually closed down. I mean, it was Buffalo, mm-hmm. New York in the 1980s. Everything was closing. And so it, it you know, it provided a, a great transition for me. But I didn't think of myself in any way as a poet. I had read some poets in a couple of classes uh, before I left. I, you know, got some books from the library and, and tried to read them and study them. But I was pretty green when I got into my MFA program. Yeah. So you've talked a bit about why poetry is useful for the working class. Um, a, a related question is, why is poetry dangerous from the perspective of the ruling class? You you quote uh, Langston Hughes talking about how, you know, when, when poets and workers start to talk together, you know, the police tend to get nervous. Why do they get nervous about, I mean, such a seemingly innocuous thing of, as poetry? Well, you know, the the central tenet of capitalism is not to have workers organize. And so if you're creating right. new, unique spaces where working people from all different sectors of the economy, right? I mean, we have, you know, in different workshops, Ford workers from the UAW and South Africa talking to each other. In our workshops in New York City, we have members of a whole bunch of different uh, worker centers, Domestic Workers United, the Taxi Workers Alliance, Street Vendor Project, others, like coming together and finding that the Poetry Workshop is a space to, A, like, tell your story, like what's happening to you, but also see that all of these people and all these different other kind of work areas are encountering very similar things. And it's a means of political education. It's a means of building solidarity between workers. And and that is just antithetical to capitalism. And so it's no surprise that uh, Langston Hughes wrote that, that that makes the authorities nervous. Mm-hmm. I get the sense that this sort of thing maybe used to be more common, this idea of, uh, you know, the left consciously trying to create a working class culture that could sustain workers uh, during the fight against capitalism. I mean, I think about, you know, the Italian Communist Party basically coming up with an entire alternative society. Um, Do you think that this has become less common in the past, say, 40 years or so? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in terms of, you know, working class culture and the arts, in a lot of ways, it certainly has, you know, and it's interesting you name that timeline of about four decades ago, because then we're to, you know, the, the both, first of all, the ends of McCarthyism, and then the beginning of, you know, 40 years ago from now would be the beginning of the Reagan presidency, right? His first act is to fire the striking PATCO air traffic controllers and, and putting a kind of a, a, a deep freeze on, on uh, union organizing, and then also defunding all these kind of programs that I talk about uh, in the first chapters of the book, right? Like defunding poets in the schools, poets in the prisons, all those kind of National Endowment for the Arts kind of programs, right? And so so all of that dates back to that point in time. 
I would say, however, though, that there is also a, you know, I tell a story in the book about I, I had been doing these poetry workshops at the St. Paul, St. Paul Ford Assembly Plant and teaching the Ford announced in their big restructuring program, The Way Forward, that they were going to close 13 plants in the U.S. and Canada and, uh, you know, something like 30,000 Ford workers uh, across the continent were going to lose their job. That was what they meant by The Way Forward, right? Um, and so I started teaching a poetry workshop at the Ford plant that was going to close in St. Paul, Minnesota. And after doing that uh, for a few months, I got a grant uh, to go to South Africa to study uh, worker culture at uh, the National English Literary Museum uh, in South Africa. And so when I found out I was going, you know, well, before I found out I was going, I, you know, had one of these ideas that we have sometimes as poets or artists, like, this is going to be my big idea. This is it. And I was like, I'm going to try to get in touch with all of these uh, Ford plants that are closing in the U.S. and in Canada. And I'm going to tell them what I'm doing in St. Paul. And I'll go do workshops at these other plants. And we'll do a big, like, website or audio archive of everybody's poems or a documentary. Maybe I can get, like, PBS to do something. You know, you have all these ideas that you think are going to work and don't. Mm -hmm. uh, and I didn't hear back from anybody at a single one of those plants. I had emailed, yeah. I had called and left messages, nothing. And so that kind of was symbolic of the American U S Canadian trade union relationship to the arts. Right. It was, we don't even return a phone call, but when I got the grant to go to South Africa, I just found on the web, you know, back in the old, I don't know, Netscape AOL days that, um, I found an address for someone at uh, NUMSA, the National Union of Metal Workers of South Africa, uh, who had organized workers at the auto plants all around the country. And so I just sent off an email. I think it was like the director of communications or something like that and figured it was going to be, you know, whoosh, there goes another email out into the stratosphere, never to be returned, like all the Ford plants here. And about two or three days later, I get a email back, you know, dear comrade Mark, uh, we would like you to do poetry workshops at both the Port Elizabeth and Pretoria Ford plants. Uh, we, they, we would like you to do them for eight hours a day, two days each. Are you a vegetarian <laughs> for the catered lunches? Here is the number of your mobile, of your, uh, driver who will pick you up at your hotel. Uh, if you have any questions, just reach out, out to us and let us know your exact dates and times. Right. And so it was like the antithesis of the Ford plants in the U.S. and Canada. Why? Because there had been an incredibly long tradition in South Africa, uh, particularly through the anti-apartheid struggles of cultural workers and industrial workers coming together and, you know, organizing together. Like it, it matters to get workers to write and perform things around your plays. It's important to get novelists and short story writers to often write about the workplace struggle. Like these groups came together in a long history of being together that we just don't see. We, we don't have in the United States since probably the era of the, you know, the WPA, what Michael Denning calls mm -hmm. the cultural front in the 20s, 30s and 40s. So we talked a bit about your kind of evolution as a poet, but I'd like to also talk about your your political evolution. Have you kind of always been a socialist or how did you come to that uh, that set of ideas? You know, I think that in the earlier musician days, I would probably categorize myself more as an anarchist. Right. Mm -hmm. There there wasn't a, a kind of larger uh, 
there wasn't nearly the kind of organizing that's happening today around the DSA and other groups in that point in time. You know, like you'd go in the cities that I lived in to where the, I don't know, Communist Party was having some kind of group meeting and it would be a bunch of people in their mid to late 70s hanging out with each other uh, talking. So I think that, you know, the, the work that I have done for the past 20 years or more has certainly uh, uh, fallen within that kind of category. Uh, but, you know, for a long time, I think I felt a bit like an outlier in the kind of work I did, the kind of political, mm-hmm. literary, cultural work. Uh, but, I, but I feel much less and less like that over the course of the past, I don't know, five, seven, eight years, because I, I feel like there's both um, more development on the side of the political left and kind of the organizing work. Uh, and then there's, you know, younger writers and younger activists have been really drawn to to this kind of work. Like I, I hear all the time from younger writers who, you know, like I got out of my MFA program and I thought, you know, my grad creative writing program, I thought there's no way that politics and writing would come together. But then I found your work and I found someone else's work and it it seemed more possible now, you know, it seemed like we could do things around it. So I, I think those kind of, uh, those developments in the the growth of the DSA, uh, Bernie's runs, uh, the last two uh, presidential campaigns, what's been happening uh, with Ocasio-Cortez uh, and others uh, from that wing of the party have been real bright spots in in what certainly hasn't been a bright spot for the last four years, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And so uh, so it gives me a lot of hope for the future. Yeah, I remember a couple of years ago, there was, you know, before Bernie's run, there was a book that was sort of a short history of socialism in, in America, and it was called The S Word. Like, it was like this <laughs> scary, uh, you know, scare word. Um, you know, I, I would add to that, that I, you know, that I think that there was a period between the between 1994, right, the passage of NAFTA and the Zapatista uprising and the end of 1999 uh, with the battle in Seattle, right, and the growing growth of the World Social Forum. And then in the United States, at least, once 9-11 happened, all of that, there was such a chill around political organizing and that, that strain that was developing from NAFTA through the end of the 90s. And I talk about this a lot with my labor historian friends and they're like, and then it took us just, you know, a good number, you know, a half dozen years or something to kind of rebuild that energy again. And so once you get to, you know, 2008, 2010, around there, uh, that energy is, 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 uh, is back and, and in much fuller force than it was in that, in that period in the late 90s. Mm hmm. I wasn't really, you know, I was a child in the 90s, so uh, I wasn't really around. But my sense looking back, you know, and reading books like No Logo is that that was an era where there was a really robust, you know, call it proletarian internationalism, an international solidarity uh, of worker struggles. And that's something I really appreciated about your book is that you you tie your your work in the U.S. to to similar projects around the world. Do you feel like that's something that's that you see lacking in the contemporary left? Or do you feel like maybe I'm being too pessimistic? Well, you know, I, I think people are working on two fronts, right? And so I, I think that uh, there is a sense that there's an opening, uh, has been an opening that 
uh, on a national scale, uh, something can happen that maybe wasn't possible to happen a decade or more ago. And so I think there's a lot of energy going into that. Um, it's hard for me, though, because of, you know, what I read. Uh, I, I'm hearing all the time about things happening on an international scale. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. it isn't as much a part of the of certain platforms as we hope it might be. Uh, but But I see a lot of energy around that. You know, one of the things that uh, I think has made that possible in the book is that once different groups hear about the work that we're doing in New York with the Worker Writers School, that there's been an interest in working with, uh, you know, a lot of international organizing in particular around uh, domestic workers and the passage of a global domestic worker bill of rights. And so I've worked with a lot, you know, in Amsterdam and the UK uh, and elsewhere besides the U.S., working with uh, very internationalized uh, worker organizations fighting for justice for domestic workers. Could you talk a bit more about the Worker Writers School? I really enjoyed the part of your book sort of towards the end where you were describing that work. Sure. So the Worker Writers School was a way to kind of formulate these workshops I had been doing at the Ford plant or in uh, South Africa uh, and elsewhere into the idea of a uh, school, quote unquote, uh, where we would offer free creative writing workshops to uh, members of different trade unions and worker centers. So it began uh, a decade ago with uh, Domestic Workers United in New York City, who had passed the first domestic worker bill of rights anywhere in the country. Uh, those old labor laws uh, from the heydays of labor uh, had left out uh, domestic workers and farm workers from uh, those early labor laws. And so Domestic Workers United organized for a number of years in New York City and eventually got signed into law the first Bill of Rights for Domestic Workers anywhere in the United States. And that was in 2010, I believe, uh, and signed into law by Governor Patterson. And so we, at that point in time, started uh, our first collaboration with members of Domestic Workers United, and we would meet at their offices uh, on Broadway once uh, once a week for about, I don't know, two or three months. And domestic workers came, wrote poetry, and then we had an event at the Penn World Voices Festival where they all performed their poems. Uh, the next year, uh, we organized with the New York Taxi Workers Alliance and had taxi drivers come for a couple months of workshops and again had an event at the Penn Festival. The following year, uh, I was living uh, where I live now in upstate New York, and I, we decided to work with a group called the Worker Justice Center of New York, who was organizing migrant farm workers in the Hudson River Valley. I did a number of uh, workshops with them, and then we brought the uh, farm workers down to New York City for the Penn Festival. We held an event, uh, two events, one at a theater, but another was a pop-up reading at the Union Square Farmers Market, uh, where the farm workers got to read right in the center of the farmers market, basically where their where the products of their labor were being sold. Right, and then uh, the second event with the farm workers was with members also of the domestic workers and the taxi drivers. And it was so great getting everybody together, you know, from the previous uh, couple of seasons of doing this, that uh, we launched the Worker Writers School. And that was a way of bringing all the members back from the various organizations and then continuing to add new members. Uh, So, and it's something we've continued to do through uh, 
coronavirus. We now meet first Saturday of the month on Zoom, and uh, we're about to expand out uh, again in early 2021. Wow. I just want to uh, go back to a couple of the things that you just mentioned. The, the the detail about how domestic workers were left out of the kind of big New Deal era union organizing bills is to me just like a really uh, powerful and you know, sad example of how the effects of systemic racism reverberate for decades because they were left out specifically because those were those were uh, you know fields of, of labor that were largely African American workers, right? I mean, that's at least that's my understanding of that history. Yeah, I mean, black and brown workers from both right. you know the United States and uh, migrant and immigrant workers from Mexico and Central America, right? They they were conveniently left out of those labor laws. So it's absolutely true. Yeah, and then another thing, you know, you you talk about this reading you did at the Union Square Farmers Market, and you know, I I like the Union Square Farmers Market, and but I had never thought of how invisibilized those workers are in the way that kind of the local food movement presents itself as, you know, these small family farms. Could you talk a little bit about how how the poets that you organized with tried to kind of push back against that invisibilization? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, it's certainly true. You know, you can drive around um, the Hudson River Valley, and unless you know where to look, you won't see, you know, kind of down a dirt road past the fields behind some trees where there's basically what looks to be an old rundown motel or series of trailers where seasonal labor lives and works for an enormous number of hours a day uh, during the growing and harvesting season. And so organizations like Worker uh, Justice Center of New York have for years uh, done incredible work trying to organize and fight for rights uh, for workers in those communities. And so we worked with them to, to do this poetry workshop as a way for, for workers to, to be able to talk about what that was a bit. But I'm also often like trying to push back a little bit against this idea that workers' poetry should always be about work. I think that's kind of the mm-hmm. tradition of working class literature. If you go, you know, to some university library and you get a working class uh, poetry anthology, what you see is a bunch of people, often now professors, who sometime in high college went back and worked in a factory or had some kind of job and they write about that, right? Uh, that's a, as an elegy, right, to their old working class days. And so I'm trying to push against that a bit in, in looking for ways for, you know, people to use poetry as a way to talk about work, but also to get beyond work, right, to those dreams that they have, to those hopes that they have for a different kind of world, to those ways that they live with their families in the maybe 10 hours a day that they aren't working or two hours a day when they aren't working or sleeping, like what, what poetry happens in those moments. Um, mm-hmm. So the book uh, I decided to use for that one was uh, Pablo Neruda's A Book of Questions, which if you know, is this very kind of surrealist book of, of questions, right? And, and the workers really took to the book and, and found these really unique ways of, of bringing their own like ideas and dreams and surrealistic connections to the poem and to the page. And so there were poems that were very much about work 
Uh, there were some poems that were just mostly about the seasons and about the year, but not necessarily about work. And then there were these super surrealistic poems that were just brilliant and funny and and uh, really great to hear them read at that event at the farmer's market. Yeah. And you, you talk a bit about social reproduction theory and you cite Tithi Bhattacharya as somebody who's kind of expanded our idea of what we should think about as work and what we should think about as working class life. And and I, I noticed that in some of the poems that you excerpt in the book, you know, even when people are writing about work, they're also writing about, you know, uh, not getting a good night's sleep and, you know, uh, drinking that first cup of coffee in the morning to try to wake up and, and all of these things that kind of go into making the workday possible, but that aren't themselves, you know, capital W work. Could you talk a bit about how social reproduction theory has kind of helped you um, think about what working class poetry means? Yeah, well, you know, I think it's simultaneously, you know, uh, as someone on the left, like as a socialist, as a Marxist, it's always theory and practice, right? And so the theory has been linked to uh, this ongoing relationship with Domestic Workers United and other domestic worker organizations um, in Europe and it's one learns through listening in the conversations, right? And that, like, yes, it's really bad to go into this workplace alone, right? To have to spend all your day with whatever, if you're taking care of someone's parent, someone's child or children, someone's dog, uh, not often being paid well under $15 an hour for that, not being paid to travel, to work from work, not, none of that being covered, right? Like living a very much a kind of subsistence wage. And then on top of that, having to come home and do the exact same job for your own family, for your own parents, for your own kids, etc. Mm-hmm. And so in listening to the ways in which we have uh, written poetry uh, together with organizations like Domestic Workers United, you hear... I hear in the poetry what I'm hearing in the conversations by academics around social reproduction theory. And so it's that mm-hmm. link between the two that has been really uh, important to me, really significant to me, right? Like often if you are, uh, you know, a male factory worker in a previous generation, you went to work, you worked really hard in the job, and then you came home you had a couple of beers, your food was cooked for you, your laundry was done for you, et cetera, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. That is not the position of people who are in the organizations like Domestic Workers United that we are consistently working with. And so when the poems happen, they often happen in these cycles of within work and at home, the same story being told, still having to do the ironing, still having to do the cleaning in both locations, doing that job twice a day. And so that's been really uh, insightful for me and has has kind of reinforced the uh the importance of social reproduction theory in thinking through this work. Yeah. I, I actually, my, my partner is a nanny and I read them uh, an excerpt of one of the poems that was written by uh, a, a domestic worker about, um, you know, quoting their employer saying, um, keep next Wednesday open. I might need you next Wednesday, but I might not, but keep it open anyway. And my partner was just like, yep, yep. I've heard that before. <laughs> so it's definitely... Yeah, informed by, uh, by by lived experience. Yeah. Um, 
Now, another aspect of your book is sort of a, a, you know, a people's history of the writing workshop, right? There's been some scholarship about kind of how writing workshops, you know, emerged sort of uh, through the GI Bill and, you know, uh, the kind of involved with new criticism and, and stuff like that. Um, but you want to tell a really different story of, of writing workshops. Can you talk about some, in, in a little bit more detail, some of the writing workshops you write about? You know, you write about June Jordan's poetry workshops with children. You write about the Watts Writers Workshop. Um, could you talk a bit about some of those? Sure. So, um, you know, one of the things that's really so interesting to me are these anthologies that, that come out of uh, all the workshops that you mentioned, right? And so one example I'll talk about is the Attica uh, Poetry Workshop. So the Attica Prison Uprising Rebellion happened in September of uh, early September, mid-September, 1971. Uh, and a few books had appeared on it, but not many. Uh, a really early book by Tom Wicker from the New York Times, who was actually part of the Attica uh, negotiating team, the team that was sent into the prison to negotiate uh, with those who held D-Yard during the uprising. Uh, and so he wrote a book about it. And then most recently, Heather Ann Thompson has written a great book, uh, which I recommend to everybody, uh, called Blood in the Water, which won the Pulitzer Prize uh, in history a couple of years ago. But a really kind of thorough, painstaking reading, not only of the uprising itself, but this long uh, struggle uh, by by people who were part of that uprising, uh, uh, inmates in the prison, uh, to get compensated by the New York State government uh, for everything that happened to them after Rockefeller's orders to raid the prison. Um, and as much as I love that book, one thing that doesn't turn up in it is that about a less than a year, uh, in 1972, in the spring of 72, uh, a poet and community college professor from Buffalo named Celeste Tisdale uh, began teaching uh, what I believe is the first Black Arts Movement poetry workshop in a prison anywhere in the United States. And so every Wednesday, uh, Celeste would drive uh, from his home in Buffalo, New York, about 30 miles east to Attica, and come in with his poems and examples and books and often albums by uh, Sonia Sanchez, Nikki Giovanni, Amiri Baraka, others, uh, and would play those albums and share those poems and sit around a table like we do in any other poetry workshop and have participants uh, write about their experiences of living in Attica, of going through the uprising. Uh, he did that for several years. Then in 1974, a book came out uh, called Poems from Attica, uh, Betcha Ain't, Poems from Attica, that collected a lot of the poems uh, from those workshops. It was put out by a really important press, uh, Dudley Randall's Broadside Press in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, got a lot of attention when it first came out uh, in 1974. And then I think pretty quickly went out of print and we you don't really hear about that book anywhere. Uh, it's almost impossible to find. If you go on Abe books now, it's, I don't know, regularly when I look, it's like about $500 for that anthology. Um, yeah. And so, uh, so I look at it and I was reading the copy and I'm trying to do, um, you know, what um, academic scholars are trained to do is to do kind of close reading analysis of those poems. Cause I think the poems in there are incredible and the the writers in them are not only 
really polished poets from having taken Celeste's uh, poetry workshop for those years. Uh, but they are, in a sense, as I argue in the book, um, borrowing from Howard Zinn and others, people's historians of the Attica uprising. They were the ones who were in Attica when it happened, right? They are the ones who have not a historian's view, but an insider's view of what, what happened uh, at Attica. And so, you know, I think that's an incredibly important book that you can't find I don't, I don't think you can find any criticism written after maybe the late 1970s that discusses that book at all. Uh, at least I am able to unearth it. So one of the things I did after, uh, after Social Poetics came out is I was finally able to get a phone number and working email for uh, Celeste. Even though I was from Buffalo, I, in fact, went to the same community college where he taught. Uh, he, and no one knew where he was. Uh, his email wasn't working. And it turns out he had moved to Georgia uh, from Buffalo. Uh, a couple of years previous, but I finally got in touch with him. Uh, I was talking to him on the phone, told him about my admiration for that book, how important uh, I think it is. And uh, he said to me on the phone, he said, Mark, you know, those, those weren't all the poems from the workshop. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, no, they wrote a bunch more poems. And I kept a much more detailed journal of going to Attica every week and what people would say to me and the workshops that we had. I said, well, what happened to it? And he goes, it's in my garage. And so I said, Celeste, <laughs> this is like, you've got this incredible archive of like your Attica workshop. That's like some of it's in your garage and some of it's in your closet. And it's been there for almost 45 years. I said, we should like the 50th anniversary of Attica is coming up. Uh, we should put that back. This has to get back in print. Like I can help you. You know, he's like, I don't know. I tried that a few times. I guess he had sent it to a couple of university presses and never got any feedback, like way back, like, you know, in the late 70s. And I said, no, I'll help you. Just send me a copy of it and I'll start to work. And he said, no, uh, I'd like you to come here and look at it. And so I said, OK. And this was, of course, before COVID. Uh, and I uh, hopped on a plane to Atlanta and drove to meet him. Uh, went to his house. Uh, he had made this fantastic lunch for us to eat. We talked for a while and then we went upstairs to his office and he had, you know, two chairs at this desk. And I spent about the next five or six hours reading through everything he had, asking him questions about it. Uh, and then we've been going back and forth, uh, about the manuscript ever since. Uh, it's with a press now. Uh, I think it is going to be out probably within the next year or so. Uh, these new poems, new journal entries. I wrote an introduction for it. And it's this incredible, I think, both historic document, but given the kind of growing uh, field of abolition studies, that it's, it's going to make an important contribution to that. And then Celeste, of course, he, he always calls me when I'm driving. Like, I have to be on the FDR <laughs> or the Taconic, like, for him to, to ring me. I don't know why that is. But uh, he'll ring me with these, you know, he'll be like, uh, we on the Taconic coming upstate, and he'll say, "Oh, Mark, I uh, forgot to tell you, in the garage, um, I have this. When I when the book came out, uh, the warden let me bring a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder into Attica, and I recorded everybody reading their poems and talking about it. Might that be something you're interested in?" <laughs> like, well, yes, this is like a 1974 reel-to-reel -reel tape of people in the book. 
reading their poems and talking about it. So I went on online, you know, I, I found some places that could digitize it near him. And we have that now on a CD and we can use that for, uh, you know, promotion of the, of the book and to add it to the more permanent archive. Uh, but I'm convinced that this is not a one-time thing, right? That there are people out there who worked in a factory or had been a waitress and have notebooks filled with stories and poems that they've written and just haven't known what to do with and are, you know, hopefully not destroyed in, in a, you know, box in their basement or something like that. And so part of the thing that interests me is, is you know, creating some people and scholars who are interested in this to be able to, like, go out there and find these archives and get them digitized and get them shared so that, you know, we can learn from what isn't just the who people say, the poets and writers people say should belong to the canon, but to all people who write to kind of to say that writing means something much wider in working class communities than, you know, T.S. Eliot. And so that's really part of the of the of the quest that uh, I feel like I'm on in my life. Yeah, I saw an article uh, recently that was um, uh, kind of showing who the poets who sit on these uh, committees that grant the big poetry prizes are, and then who the poets are who win the big poetry prizes. And surprise, surprise, it's the same like twelve people. So uh, it really seems like there's a whole world of poetry that is uh, that is outside the scope of what people think of sometimes when they think about what is American poetry. Yeah, absolutely. If people want to find that article, it was um, by Juliana Sparr and Stephanie Young. Uh, and it's really great, like detailed look at who's giving the grants, who's winning the grants, and the kind of uh, quid pro quo uh, relationships between them often. Yeah. Uh, so this is new books in performing arts. So, you know, you talk about uh, performance poetry uh, in the book, and, and we've discussed that a bit. But you also talk about theater uh, being a part of some of these struggles. Could you talk a bit about how what, what role theater has played in in these uh, these struggles and movements? I mean, some of the poets that you talk about are obviously also playwrights, Amiri Baraka among them. But um, could you talk a bit about that connection? Sure. Um, you know, one of the groups that was doing a lot of theater work uh, was this organization in Durban, South Africa. Uh, and they did both uh, theater projects uh, around uh, apartheid era bosses and their relationship to them and uh, poetry. And so the poetry book that came out of that, which again is one of these impossible to find ones, but I think is to me, it's like, the most important poetry book in the kind of work that I do, which is called Black Mamba Rising, uh, South Africa Worker Poets in the Struggle. Uh, and so there are three poets in there who I think are completely amazing in that anthology, and I write about them pretty extensively in the book. But they were also involved in a theater uh, workshop project in South Africa. And I think that in a lot of ways, like with um, Amir Baraka, who you mentioned, that in the, the worker poets, uh, kind of the the poetry work spoke to their theater work and the theater work kind of enhanced their their work in the poetry world. So I think that uh, is a really powerful example of it. Another uh, would be the um, the work of Ngugi Wathiango uh, and his 
he was working at the university uh, and living, I think it was about 20 miles away from the university in a more rural community. And people in that rural community would just come visit him over and over and say, like, we want to learn what you're learning in the university. And they put together a community theater, uh, put together a play uh, by all the peasants and factory workers and agricultural workers in that community. Uh, that, as we mentioned much earlier in this podcast with the Langston Hughes quote, drew the attention of the authorities, was shut down uh, eventually, and Googie himself was imprisoned at this point in time uh, for about a year. Uh, and so I, I think there's there's probably a bit more history on workers' theater, uh, and I think theater has often done a bit better job of kind of trying to engage uh, different trade unions and worker groups. There's a, a little more interaction and conversation happening in theater than has been happening in poetry. Um, but yeah, there's a there's a really long tradition of that kind of work. Uh, another aspect of the book that I found particularly interesting uh, was your discussion of how writers uh, have supported union struggles in bookstores. I mean, we know that bookstore employees are often uh, quite underpaid, very rarely have unions. I actually have one of my best friends is currently involved in a union struggle at his bookstore. Um, could you talk a bit about kind of what workers can do to support those uh, those struggles of people in other points of the production and distribution of books? Yeah, well, I, I think the first thing is to kind of both be consistently open to these stories, right? And by which I mean like seeking them out and learning what's happening. Uh, there have been uh, a whole host of organizing successes and organizing struggles. Um, I think one of the most recent ones to the time that we're having this conversation is the uh, attempt by uh, workers at the staff at Poets House uh, in New York City, uh, attempting to unionize uh, with the UAW. And I think it was a day or two before their vote to uh, vote to uh, to organize through the union, they were all laid off uh, as a uh, financial decision during the pandemic. So there's some great stories out there about that. I know that in New York City, I had been um, in conversation with workers at places like McNally Jackson who were working to organize at uh at other bookstores uh, in the city that that were doing similar work. And it all goes back, I talk about in a chapter of uh, a social poetics to my own work, uh, working with workers at a Borders bookstore in Minneapolis uh, in the very early 2000s, uh, trying to organize one of those big box uh, bookstores. And they eventually did, in fact, uh, unionize the bookstore uh, through the UFCW in Minneapolis. And it was a very kind of difficult time. Uh, and Borders, as we all know, eventually shortly thereafter shuttered nationally, uh, closed down. Uh, so it, I mean, I encourage people to read that chapter as some history into into those kind of organizing drives because there, there isn't a lot of it. But what's happening today is, uh, is really, I think, uh, a great possibility. Mm -hmm. Finally, do you have any advice to any writers who want to start this kind of community-based or, or worker organization-based writing program? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things. Um, one is certainly, like, one of the key maybe things for for the Worker Writer School is, is that we got to make long-term commitments, right? 
I think uh, one of the things that happens not only in the writing community, but the art world in general, uh, is people have an idea to, to do something like this and they make it a short-term project. Uh, you know, we're going to offer six-week uh, creative writing workshop for uh, workers at the local public library. Uh, that's okay, but the problem is, one, it's hard to often communicate that this is even happening to workers. That often takes a lot of time, right, to get it into the knowledge that this is happening into the right people's hands uh, or right people's ears or right people's Twitter feeds or whatever the case may be. Um, second of all, it often takes people a while to, you know, you might hear about it and think that's not for me and have to build up the courage to be willing to do it. Uh, so for us at the Worker Writer School, it's been incredibly important. Now we're, we're in our 10th year in collaboration of doing this with PEN America. We do it the first Saturday of every month we meet, uh, normally at Penn's offices uh, on Broadway, now on Zoom. But everybody knows that we're going to be there the first Saturday of every month. And so if you're a worker and you hear about us and it's, what is it, December right now when we're talking, right? You might say, that's not for me. And then you go through the holidays, you go through the new year, gets to be like January, you're still in the same kind of working situation, comes to be February, you remember that workshop again, you look it up. It doesn't do any workers any good if that workshop ended two months ago. Right. Like, oh, I finally got the gumption up to do this thing. I finally got the bravery up to share my story with other strangers and other workers and some teacher who I don't know. Like we want to make sure that, oh, you thought of it in late February. Well, the first Saturday in March, we're meeting. And if you have to work that day, the first Saturday in April, we're meeting. And all through the summer and all through the fall, we're meeting first Saturday of every month. I think that aspect is incredibly important. Uh, I know that in a lot of the art world, there's often like projects that some artist goes in and sets something up in the community and it happens for a month or two and then it's taken down. I'm thinking of like, especially the Gramsci project, the Gramsci monument in, in the Bronx, right? Like these things kind of get set up and they're there and then they get taken down and there's nothing but ghosts left. And so, uh, we want to make sure well, there's also in a very expensive catalog of the <laughs> of the ghost available uh, from bookstores. But we want to make sure that we are kind of a permanent organization uh, where whenever workers are ready to write, we're going to be there for them. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Mark. That was a wonderful answer. And uh, I've taken up a lot of your time, but thanks so much for being on New Books and Performing Arts. And thanks for writing such a wonderful and eye-opening book. Well, thank you so much. And I'm wishing you and uh, everybody who listens in just uh, a healthy uh, time as we get through what is hopefully uh, the last uh, months of, of the coronavirus. And, and especially to all of the frontline workers who have been out there uh, every single day through it. So thank you. And uh, one more thing. I believe it's your birthday tomorrow. Isn't that right? Well, I think it's your birthday the day after that. That's true. Happy birthday, Mark. Same to you. You have a good one. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.